Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. You're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR Radio. Thank you, Encyclopedia, for that show. I'm Taz, and I'll be hosting the show this afternoon. Before I begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the owners of the land on which we are meeting and broadcasting from today. We pay our respect to their elders past, present, and future, and extend this respect to our Indigenous listeners as well. This land was never ceded, and the processes of colonization, incarceration, and genocide that began over two centuries ago continue to this day. And I hope we continue to reflect this throughout the show as well as in our everyday life. And with that, uh, we'll go on to today's main feature. I'll be in conversation with our guests, Elsa and Kohava, on being queer and Jewish. And of course, they're both Jewish. <laughs> Elsa is a queer Ashkenazi Jewish and Chinese person. She facilitates workshops in schools about bullying and prejudice, and in workplaces and organizations about race and racism. She studies social work and is about to undertake her honors thesis about the ways individuals from mixed minority heritages engage with their identities and communities. Kohava is a queer and disability rights activist who loves being autistic, ADHD, and Jewish. They volunteers at the Trans Advocacy Collective Why Gender and runs workshops on gender, disability, and access and culture. Elsa and Kohava, thank you for being on the show. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, you were both in the uh, Faith and Queer video from Democracy in Color. Yeah, we are oh, actually, just yeah. by chance. We never crossed paths, though, because they just did it individually. But when they cut us together, I was like, oh, hi. <laughs> so it was nice. Awesome. I mean, perhaps for disclosure, um, I am not Jewish. Um, I am Sunni Muslim, born to like, kind of Filipino parents in Saudi Arabia. So, of course, it's not my place, experience, or expertise to speak on being queer and Jewish. And growing up, of course, uh, in Saudi Arabia, I rarely came across Jewish people. <laughs> and maybe I'll start off with a few questions. Just to t- um, In terms of coming to terms or coming out, being proud of different cultural queer and queer identities, um, how have you found the struggle and strength in community, culture, and faith, if any? Mm, big question. Do you want to go first? Yeah, there's lot, lots of questions there. <laughs> I can I can start. Um, so I think for me, uh, I I don't think I necessarily had a um, typical experience of uh, coming out in family or community. Um, in that I didn't ever really. It just kind of was. Um, so my family are all very um, I don't know left wing progressive uh, people, and I don't know if I just didn't think that. Uh, sexualities that weren't straight were just so normalised because of my family culture or what, but um, I just had a girlfriend at some point and no one really no one really asked about it. I mean, they asked the, the normal things like, how are you and your girlfriend kind of thing, but um, there was nothing to separate it from any other experiences that, I, that I'd had up until that point, really. Um, I think for me, my family is my 
primary sort of point of reference for the Jewish community for, for me. I'm not super enmeshed in the Jewish community otherwise. So for me, it really felt like, um, you know, my, my queerness was completely uh, compatible and um, really easy, to be honest, with my Jewish community that I had around me. Yeah, I had similar experiences with the Jewish community, but different experiences on the family side of things. Mm -hmm. So my family is not very accepting of queerness or transness. I didn't have a very good experience with them, but it wasn't anything to do with Judaism on that front. Being Jewish and being part of Jewish community is has always been a space where I can be open about being trans and being bi and that's never been any kind of conflict. Uh, at the time when I realized I was non-binary I was going to a Jewish youth movement and really regularly and they were some of the first people I told and it was really easy. Mm. It's interesting I feel like because for me I actually feel like uh, the way at least my family and therefore community does queerness uh, or does Jewishness, I, I feel like is really queer. Um, I, I don't know. I think other people might have a similar culture, but because uh, Jewishness is so much about questioning and challenging and critiquing and unpacking things, um, like we've been queering shit for ages, you know? Um, and so for me, like, I feel like my Jewishness in my family and community has actually always been really queer. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely get what you mean there, that Judaism is so centred around arguments and mm. questions and you know, Judaism is so flexible and changes mm. so readily. And um, from your experiences, have you found services and maybe attitudes as well in broader queer community um, inclusive or culturally appropriate? I think I've said a few times before that I've always had a much easier time being queer in Jewish spaces than being Jewish in queer spaces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and Elsa's nodding too. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I think queer spaces and a lot of progressive spaces in general, and like I've had the same kind of experiences in disability spaces, don't tend to have a good understanding of what anti-Semitism looks like and how it differs from other forms of systemic oppression often have a lot of stereotypes about Judaism and what Jews are, don't really understand that Judaism is an ethno-religion and tend to overmatch it to Christianity. Could you expand <laughs> on how anti-Semitism differs from other systemic oppressions? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> Can I stop? <laughs> well, so most forms of oppression and certainly most forms of racism or ethnic-based oppression paint the oppressed group as inferior, as weak, as incapable. And that's where a lot of the really harmful stereotypes come from. But when it comes to anti-Semitism, we're painted as powerful and morally inferior. So a lot of anti-Semitic tropes imply that Jews control the banks or control Hollywood or the media or are influencing or puppeting world governments. Mm. And so because they're often framed around, around 
Jews as a powerful group. A lot of people who've had experiences with oppression that have been very different from that think that it's positive or hear people saying that Jews are rich and powerful and don't understand how that that's coming from a place of discrimination. But those whose stereotypes and myths have been used as excuses for or to justify really violent times uh, in our history. And, and so I think that's part of why a lot of progressive spaces don't really recognize that at very well. Mm. Another thing that springs to mind for me is like the cyclic nature of anti-Semitism as well. So there's, there's this cycle of like, uh, Jewish people being persecuted and then them, um, you know, re-establishing themselves, like a assimilating a lot of the time, gaining some success, which they're then demonised for off the, ba off the back of these tropes. Um, and then their success is seen as um, evidence of them, yeah, being controlling and powerful, uh, which then they get blamed for other disadvantage that exists or, um, you know, if there's some kind of financial crash or something like that, they're the scapegoats for that and then the, they're persecuted again and it's it's this cycle that happens. So um, at times where Jewish people do have um, relative success as well, then they're, they're demonised for that as well without recognising that it's part of this loop and part of this cycle. And I think emphasising that scapegoat part mm. is really important. Yeah. That when progressive groups fall into this trap of accepting anti-Semitic tropes and blaming Jews for the oppression of other groups or for classism, not only does that hurt us as Jews and make us very unsafe, it also prevents any real activism from addressing the problems because actually privileged groups are able to use Jews as a shield and deflect criticism from them. Yeah, I think there's this um, thing one person once said, like, you know, superhumanization is a, as a form of dehumanization hmm. as well. So. And I think we're sort of touching into this, um, I guess, into my next um, um, question, I guess. It's like, as a left-wing Jewish person, how do you na find navigating left-wing and social justice spaces? I think we've sort of just touched on it um, just then. Uh, I think for me, it's it's there are two sides to it. I mean, on the one hand, because I grew up so left-wing, finding left-wing spaces was just such a blessing, you know? Um, I think growing up in otherwise mainstream kind of normie liberal um, society generally, um, finding left-wing spaces for the most part has been hugely validating. Um, and the sense of community that I've had in that has been immense. In saying that, yeah, doing that as a, as a Jewish person can be challenging. Um, I think uh, in one way, which I guess we've named, is that um, the misunderstanding of or lack of understanding around anti-Semitism. Um, it's, it's maybe a little bit more jarring being in spaces that are meant to be radically political and anti-oppressive and them completely forgetting about Judaism and Jewishness and the experiences that that come along with that to the extent where even there'll be things like you know a, a Nazi rally in the city and someone will post on Facebook like a warning and being like to people of color and queers like just letting you know there's a Nazi rally like 
trigger warning lookout, which is awesome. There, there should be those things. But like, what about Jewish people? Like, surely a Nazi rally is the most triggering for Jewish people, or at least, you know, a very, very up there, and yet seem to be omitted from, from that narrative entirely. So I think for me that that is a, a big one. Um, I've also, to be honest, seen pretty blatant anti-Semitism in, in those radical spaces too. I think there's like um, anti-Semitism by omission and then there's anti-Semitism by anti-Semitism, and um, I see that as well. Uh, and seeing people not opposing it I think is really difficult as well. And then I think the other uh, really difficult issue, I guess, in being Jewish in left-wing communities is uh, are you a good Jew or are you a bad Jew? Um, So are you a Jewish Zionist or are you a Jewish anti-Zionist? You only have access to this space if you tell us which one you are um, in 25 words or less. And I think for many Jewish people... Uh, in the Jewish community that is really difficult Um, but I think beyond being difficult it's also just really uh, oversimplified as in the position that it puts Jewish people in is really oversimplified. Even for left-wing anti-Zionist Jews that is so much more complicated as a Jewish person than it is for a non-Palestinian person of colour or a white person in the queer community and um, kind of drawing drawing the for those people to get to set the bounds um, for what makes you a good you or a bad you on something that they never actually have to encounter speak on do anything actively about to be honest the, the most outspoken um, face-to-face conversations I've, I've had with people um, who, who are talking about being anti-zionist and um, you know, pro-Palestine, which, like, great, um, uh, they don't actually do anything. They don't have to do anything because it's not their communities that they have to convince. You know, we're the ones doing that work, Um, but we still have to work ten times harder to uh, prove that we are doing the right thing and being pro-Palestine and being non- or anti-Zionist in a way that they approve of, which is bizarre to me. Yeah, and it's a question that they shouldn't be asking Mm. just because we're Jewish. Like, it's not as if these spaces are focused on advocacy around Israel and Palestine and so asking questions of everyone who wants to work with them on this cause. It's they go, oh, you're a Jew? Let me quiz you. Mm. And that's just so inappropriate. And exactly like Elsa said, they never have to do the work. If they don't want to deal with this topic, they get to not deal with this topic. Mm -hmm. If they want to not learn about uh, the different things that could possibly fall under the umbrella of Zionism um, and anti-Zionism and how how those have, have been weaponized is by so many different groups, they get to just not learn that and usually haven't. Mm. And I mean, most of the time we don't ask people to be well-versed on international conflicts in that way, you know? Like, and I have 
had to do a whole lot of learning. And I'm not going to pretend that I'm some kind of scholar. I'm not. But I'm sure I know more than the majority of the people who are quizzing me on it because it's it's a defence mechanism for me. It's the way that I protect my Jewish and left-wing identity, the way I keep those things intact, is by increasing my knowledge on an international conflict that, uh, honestly, I've never... Well, conflict is not the right word, but that I have never actually had to be involved in you know my, my family's not Israeli or Palestinian um, I've never been I I don't really know anything about it um, but I but I have to because of my Jewishness and I think that that's a thing that other that we know isn't an okay thing to ask of other religions you know we don't we don't point at people and go, especially in social justice communities, you know, we don't make people answer to countries or nations that are doing shitty things um, because of their religion, but it's something that we love to do to Jewish people. I actually wanted to touch on, you know, how you talked about putting Jewish people into um, a bit of a complicated space to to pick one or the other, you know, mm. and also, you know, obviously one can, you can obviously move between different worldviews, like just like anybody else can. Um, I mean, thank you for sharing that. Like, obviously, there's a lot of this <laughs> eye-opening. And um, maybe this might touch on the next one. Like, do you consider yourself Jewish by culture, faith, or ethnicity? And can you expand on these differences? Submitted by one of our viewers. By culture and ethnicity, certainly. I think a lot of people, certainly a lot of people in Australia, uh overemphasize the role of faith in Judaism because they're so used to Christianity that we live in such a Christian normative society that if someone's not an active part of another religion, Christianity is going to be their primary point of reference, even if they're not Christian themselves, just mm. because mainstream Australian culture is so saturated with it everywhere, is that Faith isn't really a central part of Judaism. The, uh, Judaism doesn't require belief in a god because we're an ethno-religion. We're not uh, just based around a set of beliefs. And Judaism has always been a lot more focused on study and on actions than on some set of beliefs around god. So I think people massively over or emphasize faith when they think about Judaism and ignore the cultural and ethnic aspects. Mm. Yeah, I think that's so interesting the way that you say the way Judaism is set up sort of um, with the context of Christianity. It reminds me so much of when I was growing up and it's like, um, yeah, it's Hanukkah. Oh, is that Jewish Christmas? Oh and it's like, God. no, that's that's not how it works. We don't just have equivalents <laughs> to like all of your things. Um, but someone, I think... Someone asked me the other day if Sukkot was Jewish Thanksgiving. I saw a meme about that online. I'm not going to lie. I didn't actually get it. Um, but... Yeah, I don't know why people... And same with, like, Pesach. Is Pesach Easter? I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, also in saying that, when I was, like, 10, it definitely was. Like, that is what I understood these holidays to be because I grew up in, like, a Christian mainstream. But I think what it makes me think of as well, it, it, which is, I guess, for me personally in my Jewish identity, I think so much of my Jewish identity was constructed 
in opposition to Christianity. So for me, I think I identified as Jewish when I was younger because I knew that I wasn't Christian. Like I was watching Christianity play out in front of me and at my school and, you know, in family friends. And I was like, well, that's not what I'm doing. So I must be Jewish. Um, so I, and I guess that's because culturally I'm Jewish and I do consider myself culturally and ethnically Jewish and not really um, by faith. But I think that I think that that culture in me is so strong slash spitefully present <laughs> because it was in opposition to Christianity. It was the way that I um, identified what what I was not more than what I was when I was growing up. Um, and so, yeah, for me, culturally, it's always been a really big thing. And I think eth ethnically, I think I also say I'm ethnically Jewish partly because of how... Um, how challenging it is for people to take my Jewishness seriously as an Asian person of colour as well. So when people look at me, they can't comprehend that I could possibly be Jewish because I'm Asian and because I'm Chinese. Um, and I think when they finally get it through their heads, the, the paradigm they're looking at it at is like, well, you can be Chinese and still be Jewish by religion kind of thing. Like, and, I, and I think me being ethnically Ashkenazi Jewish is saying, no, 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 you have to push yourself even harder than that. <laughs> like, it's not just that I'm a Chinese person who is Jewish by religion. I, I am also ethnically Ashkenazi Jewish. Um, and I think that ethnicity often gets omitted from conversations about mm. Jewishness um, and the many different ethnicities that are Jewish, um, whether that be, you know, Ashkenazi, which I am, or Sephardi, or um, what other ones? You know, Mizrahi, Mizrahi um, a, a bunch of different e ethnicities that um, are also also people of colour as well, um, but that often get omitted from Jewish narratives and images as well. And um, um, for those that do consider Jewishness their ethnicity, also another question from one of our listeners. For those who consider Jewishness their, their ethnicity, how does this relate to whiteness? <laughs> I love we just look at each other, we're like, uh, how much time do we have? Yeah, <laughs> like a couple of days. <laughs> we, uh, how does it relate to whiteness? Very, very complicatedly so like the way that we talk about race and whiteness in australia is very influenced by an american context and and so colorism um, is a huge influence on the way we talk about and construct ideas around who is and isn't white and and who is and isn't a person of colour. And of course, the term person of colour originated in an American context as well. And and when you look at other parts of the world, it can be pretty different. And so whether or not white-passing Jews are white or white-passing can vary a lot depending on where you are and and the people you're interacting with is pretty different from America compared to Europe, compared to the Middle East. And, and I think it can be quite difficult for a lot of Jews to then 
interact with parts of social justice that are focused on race because they often don't have that background knowledge either. They often are coming from a pretty American-centric context and so a lot of that nuance can get lost really easily. Mm. And even the... I I feel like... Ashkenazi Jewishness exists in this really weird spot that's almost a little bit fluid at times. Like, I think it can be dependent on... Like, the relative whiteness of Ashkenazi Jews can be dependent on um, their... Yeah, so where it is, like, the privilege that they hold in the country or, you know, so in Australia, Jewishness and Jewish representation looks really, really different to in the States. But because we consume so much... Uh, American, US media, TV shows, it almost looks like Jews are more represented than than they are in in Australia. Um, I also think it depends even on how in community you are. Like I think that Jewish people who grow up in... So I run workshops in schools and recently did one at a private Jewish school and we were talking about race and all these Jewish uh, students were talking about um, being white and all of them were talking about being white and I was so taken aback by it. And I realised, though, that, you know, when, when you grow up in a community where you're maybe not experiencing so much anti-Semitism or you're not feeling like the odd one out or like a minority that you do feel whiter, you know, you're, you, you, you're leveraging this, the privilege, I guess, that exists of just growing up in, in community um, and that that can make it feel different. For me, I've, I feel like my family, I don't think of any of them as white until I do. Like we can, we'll, we'll be talking about something or I'll be talking about them and someone will refer to them as like, you know, what about your white parent or what about your white family? And I'm like, who? Like, what What parent do you know about that I don't? Like, to me, my mom and her family are absolutely not white. Um, but then sometimes I'll be having a conversation about something that really specifically affects me as a person of colour and suddenly the paradigm shifts for me and, and in the context of what I'm talking about, they are white. Um, so I think... Yeah, there, there needs to be a little bit of fluidity there when we're talking about different contexts, whether that be uh, situational or, like, geographical or whatever that context might be. And um, just to touch on where you said that there are differences in terms of the way Jewishness is represented in the United States and Australia, could you, like, expand on what those differences are? I think the biggest one, and this is actually an issue that I have not just with Jewishness but with other forms of representation for minority groups as well, is that they, um, because we consume so much, yeah, US-centric media, we we think that our demographics look the same as theirs when they just don't. Um, there is so much Ashkenazi Jewish representation in US media, um, mostly of men, Jewish men represented in US media, um, TV shows like, I don't know, Seinfeld and other other TV shows, lots of TV shows. Um, And so there is this um, American Ashkenazi Jewish representation that exists exists in the States that would make you think that Jewish people are everywhere in Australia if you were to, um, you know, look at that and assume that we were in the same context, which I think a 
a lot of people do. Like I think a lot of us just watch US TV and we're like, yeah, that's us. And it's like, it's, it's not. <laughs> that's not us. Um, whereas, yeah, I think Judaism is far less understood in, in Australia. I'll, I'll speak at least in a Melbourne context, like is far less understood, even though Melbourne has one of the biggest Jewish populations, you know, of any city in Australia. Um, so little understanding about Jewishness. I know for a lot of people, I'm the only Jewish person that they know. Um, and it, it's very apparent when they speak to me that I'm the first Jewish person that they've actually met. Um, culturally as well, US Ashkenazi Jewishness does look different to Australian Ashkenazi Jewishness, even in little things like humour or mannerisms, stuff like, stuff like that, that you know, is really fun to see in TV but doesn't necessarily look exactly the same in an Australian context. So I think there are lots of ways that that representation differs. Yeah, and I think part of it is that the US representation of Jews that exists is very much New York. Yeah. It shows set in New York, which is where a majority of Jews in the US live. If so who I think that's part of what skews it as well. Like there are certainly parts of the US that have much smaller Jewish populations and where the Jewish people living there have some cultural differences compared to uh, kind of New York Jewish identity. Mm. But it, New York is really one of the very, very, very few places outside of the Middle East where there's a large Jewish population. And so I think that it's, that image that kind of gets people expecting or thinking that Jews are much more represented than we are. Mm. Tell me about your experience with like, mm. the religious discrimination bill. Um, obviously, maybe that was probably weeks ago. <laughs> but um, I guess um, I remember going to this forum where um, there was about four panelists, so three Christians and one Muslim, and pretty much all of them were East Asians. <laughs> Mm. Or, or Southeast Asian, um, which kind of like got me thinking about like how there wasn't many um, m m or much inclusion about, you know, um, I guess maybe Jewish practice or tradition and then like Hinduism or Buddhism and how I mean, I suppose it's a bit tricky to call them a religion per se, but maybe from, I guess, from your perspectives, if you can talk to that. Yeah. So the proposed religious discrimination bill is a bill that the conservative parties have put forth uh, that's theoretically about religious discrimination and protecting people from that, but is really about giving religions and, to be blunt, Christians an excuse and a legal excuse to discriminate against queer people and trans people and women. Mm. Yeah, I, I um, notice, I guess, a lack of Jewish representation in conversations on the religious discrimination bill. I think in saying that, though, I'm... Rel I mean, I don't really know why there are so many Christian panellists, though, talking about it, but I think I, I'm okay with there being less Jewish representation because I think the the communities that are most at risk through this bill are Muslim communities more than anything else. So I think that those are the voices that I would want to be elevated in those conversations too. Because, yeah, when I... When I it, it's funny, when we filmed that video... The, the bill, the draft of the bill hadn't even been, um, 
you know, released yet. It, it was actually preemptive. We heard about the bill and we're like, oh, that can't be good. Um, <laughs> like, could could guess what was going to be in it pretty much. And so, you know, we made that video um, as a preemptive message, basically saying this is what we would want the bill to be and this is absolutely what we would not want it to be. Um, and, of course, it was exactly what we thought it would be. Yeah, really just um, an excuse for Christian people to do or say what whatever they want without consequence, which I think is why when I was reading it, I was thinking, I was like, this basically makes it look like someone can say anything and just like cite Jesus at the bottom and it'll be fine. But God forbid anyone signs off Allah. Like that's not going to, you know, there's not going to be any protection there. Um, Yeah, I don't know. They were describing it as like a shield rather than a sword. I don't really know what that metaphor (laughs) means, but um, yeah. It it means it's supposed to, or that uh, the groups that have been saying shield, not a sword, and I agree that it's not a particularly clear (laughs) metaphor, (laughs) are trying to say, it should be something for religious people to defend themselves with, not attack other people with. So they can have yeah, a shield, right. but not a sword. But I think that metaphor kind of falls down because uh, it doesn't really get into the core of the problem that they want to defend themselves from accurate accusations of queerphobia or transphobia yeah. or misogyny or denying access to healthcare that they don't approve of, like abortion or mm. contraception. It's like shield from accountability from your sword. <laughs> like, exactly. what's happening? Yeah. You normally assume that where there's a shield, there could be a sword potentially. Yeah. Well. Like, usually they're both I, I think someone <laughs> thought of that metaphor and was very proud of themselves. Yeah. And now it's been in every email there from were a couple like of different groups. Ten people sat in a boardroom for days. They were like, no, 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 but how can we? I've got it, I've got it. A shield, not a sword. And they all tapped each other on the back and were like, nice work, mate, let's go home. (laughs) Yeah, the sword's hidden. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, but I do think there has been uh, a bit of a disappointment. I've been a bit disappointed in how some of the people who made the video or who shared the video have talked about it because I've seen a lot of different groups in Melbourne sharing video and frequently listing the groups who will be affected and leaving out Jews and ignoring the way that anti-Semitism is is obviously very relevant to this question and ignoring the way is that Jews are one of the groups that would particularly need protection from religious discrimination given the rise in white supremacy and given the amount of anti-Semitism that we deal with and that Jews alongside with Muslims and with other people from marginalized religions should have been at the center of this along with queer and trans people and really haven't been. And a lot of the conversation from progressive sides around that hasn't acknowledged Jews or the threat of anti-Semitism. I was thinking about, um, I think we talked a bit about like how queer communities have been not inclusive to Jewish people, but maybe not about like the like structural ways that that's been the case. Like, Oh know. yeah, we could talk in more detail about that. Yeah, I think you would be able to speak on it far better than I would personally, but... Yeah, yeah, okay, so structural ways that queer communities are often not very inclusive of Jews. 
uh, a lot of it is really basic things like when there's food available, having kosher food, uh, but also understanding that there are different interpretations of kashrut, of uh, Jewish dietary laws. So who, you know, when someone's registering for an event, having uh, a field to fill in where they can say what version or interpretation of kashrut they hold by so they can make sure they're getting the right food or the way that so many events will be held on Jewish holidays or on Shabbat and you know of course not every Jewish person does observe Shabbat and it'd be totally ridiculous to expect uh, you know other people to not hold events on any of our so, you know, culturally or religiously significant days, there's a lot of them. <laughs> but when it's an event that's particularly relevant to Jewish people and that's held on a day that we can't attend, that's quite frustrating. Like, one uh, local group if I saw recently had a panel about the religious discrimination bill on a Friday evening which is the start of Shabbat. <laughs> so Jews, there's all many Jews come and go there. Or there was a trans group that is starting a new project and they've got a lot of funding towards it and it's a major project that's going to go over a couple of years. And so they held a consultation for the trans community from Friday evening to Saturday evening, which is exactly Shabbat. <laughs> So, you know, if it's something that's particularly relevant to Jewish people or is a major consultation where not getting a chance to put your voice forward really means that, that, that our needs or experiences aren't going to be represented in something that's very significant, then that's where I think people should be looking at the calendar a little more closely and thinking about how to schedule things things in a way that's going to let more of us come. I agree. <laughs> uh, for, for me, I've, I feel the structural impact of that much less because I'm, I'm not a religious Jewish person. So for me, I don't um, observe Shabbat and Jewish holidays for, for me are much more casual. Um, but I definitely can, you know, see the, the impact that it, it has on other people in the community. And I think also just the general lack of effort to know as well. Like I think that people make a point of um, being salient to other uh, holidays or um, practices of other minority groups, but that people just bother less, I think, to do that with, with Jewishness and Judaism. Yeah, or they'll assume that Hanukkah is our big significant holiday just because it's close to Christmas in the calendar mm. most years. Uh, so uh, if they're going to think about any Jewish holidays, they might avoid that one, which is a step up from what most groups are doing, <laughs> but still doesn't help much when they still have events on Yom Kippur or Pesach or Rosh Hashanah. Mm, yeah, Hanukkah was like no thing in my life growing up, really. Like it was like a fun 
holiday, you know, you got to do the candles, you got to play the dreidel game, but like in terms of like emotional significance or like, I don't know, any any practice that would mean you couldn't do so, so, something that was like, Hanukkah is so irrelevant. I never thought actually about the fact that it just coincides with Christmas, so it's just assumed that it's the big one. That's so funny and sad, but also funny. <laughs> But also it doesn't always coincide with Christmas because our yeah. calendar is different. So sometimes, you know, Hanukkah will be in November and then it'll be like the last week of December. Like, oh, and happy Hanukkah. Yeah, just like it. I actually our think... holidays aren't the same. I think I blame the OC for that somewhat. And they're like, Seth Cohen's family had Chrismukha. And I feel like that just like sealed the deal for everyone. They were like, yes, okay, Christmas. And I get it. I get it now. And it's like, you don't get it. <laughs> you don't get it, Seth Cohen. <laughs> so it's like the Jewish holidays. Are they on like a lunar calendar or how is it calculated sort of thing? Mm. Yeah, it's a lunar calendar. And all, but I think all lunar calendars tend to be a little bit different from each other yeah, yeah. anyway. So, phase of the moon or whatever. yeah, yeah. So, I'm not sure of the specifics of the lunar yeah. calendar, but yeah, they all change each year. So, there's not like this is this date or this is this date. Yeah, it's on a lunar calendar and also uh, kind of like how the Gregorian calendar has leap years where there's an extra day every four years we have a leap month um on a schedule that is not nearly as easy to list as every four years so we'll skip that part but it, it like means every prime that, number like <laughs> uh, but it means that the time of our holidays can vary a lot interesting too something i only learned recently because i'm a bad jew is that um some of our holidays, so they'll go over more than one day because it's relative to Israel as well. So, like, Passover, you can correct me. I feel like you're about to. Yeah, yes. do it. You do it. Um, okay, so relative to Israel isn't exactly the right uh, reason behind it. Okay. Um, so some of our holidays have essentially an extra day. Mm. Uh, and the reason behind this is that... Obviously, as a people, we you know kind of started and started a lot of our traditions and Hagim holidays when we were in the same place. Uh, so communication was relatively easy, and the calendar is based on on the seeing the new moon to know when a month starts. Right, as Jews became a diaspora people and spread out further and further, it got harder for communities to know when the month had started because it required witnesses actually seeing the the phase of the moon and and confirming it so some communities that were further away would basically observe of the holidays over two days instead of one so they knew that they had definitely observed it on the right day and now um so the communities in israel never did that because that's where they were you know, judging whether the moon had been seen. Anyway, so they didn't have to worry about communication. Uh, so in Israel, they don't have the extra day. And they just then, do one day of Passover. What a shame. <laughs> and then in the diaspora, uh, some communities have kept the extra day and some haven't. Can definitely relate to having moon arguments. 
<laughs> that kind of, you know, there's also our own methodology of like what counts as witnesses, how many people have to witness it. Mm. Yeah. And they have to be reliable sources. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on top of that. But um, maybe for the sake of our, of our listeners um, who are not familiar with Jewish holidays. Sorry, you probably get asked this like 10,000 times. But, you know, Pesach, Hanukkah, Yom Kippur, like, you know, maybe like a little brief breakdown of the significance, perhaps. Mm. I don't think I've ever been asked that ever. Which really? is maybe well, sadder. Well, because I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's because everyone else is an expert. <laughs> I don't think you're behind on that front. I was going to say, I get asked that all the time. And then I realized I also talk about Judaism all the time. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which holiday did you want oh, a breakdown well, of? Um, well, I suppose maybe. Well, let's just limit it to three. <laughs> like, <laughs> instead of like... <laughs> Ten. <laughs> so maybe let's say because you touched on Hanukkah and then you know Yom, Yom Kippur and I suppose we can go on. Right? I guess Pesach so, and Pesach Rosh Hashanah. Pesach. I feel like would be the one. Well, maybe I'll speak to Pesach because that's the biggest one for my family that we do. Um, and I've watched the Rugrats episode of uh, the Rugrats Passover episode many times, so I consider myself a bit of an expert. Um, but so Passover is basically um, about uh, Moses leading the Jews uh, out of Egypt, so they were slaves in Egypt, and um, about uh, him asking for the Jews to be set free, um, Pharaoh being like, yeah, that's cool, and then being like, no, just kidding, punked. And um, then Moses and God inflicting plagues onto um, onto Egypt uh, and then eventually them crossing, parting the sea and, and escaping Egypt. Is that a good summary? Yeah, you emphasize Moshe a lot more than I would. Oh, that, that's interesting. Because the Haggadah doesn't mention Moses. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. So that's it's fascinating. Yeah. Well, mine is so far from like a like biblical version. <laughs> I feel I don't know how to how do I describe that. The way that Pesach is observed is primarily with a seder. So. Depending on how many days you keep, Pesach is seven or eight days, and on the first or first and second night, we have a Seder, which is sort of a ritual storytelling and meal. Mm. So there's a lot of different foods that are, are symbolic of a lot of different thing, things, things, mm. and the. Oh, which can I, can I add as well? That is one of the things that I think. Um, makes Jewishness so queer is like the Seder plate on Passover. So basically the, yeah, the Seder plate has like a bunch of different things on it that represent a bunch of different things. So there's like, um, like parsley, which is used to represent like new life, right? No, freedom, uh, those things. And you've got like salt water, which is like the tears of slaves, stuff like that. But, um, 
there are additions that can be made to the Seder plate to represent different things. So um, there's an orange that gets used on the Seder plate to represent um, queer community. Um, more recently, I've also heard about olives being used to represent Palestinian solidarity um, and also uh, eucalyptus leaves to represent um, First Nations people in Australia. Um, I mean, obviously, it's not used in other places, so that's specific to an Australian context. Um, but, yeah, so there are so many ways that um, Jewishness queers itself, you know, and um, and cha challenges itself and, and moves and um, expands as well. And, um, yeah, I think the Seder plate is, like, such a, such a cool, visible way um, to see that happening. Yeah, and Pesach in particular is a holiday that really lends itself to that kind of adaptation. It's very easy to have a sort of social justice focused Seder because the story we're telling is about liberation from slavery and, mm. and about uh, it's the Exodus narrative. So mm. it's Jews being slaves in Egypt and escaping from that. And so it's really common for... Uh, like additional readings around on that to uh, reference contemporary political issues that affect Jews and that affect other communities. And yeah, the Seder play, it's a really good example of it. I'm really enjoying, um, you know, hearing that there's a lot of focus on community. And, you know, I might imagine like if you were to be um, ostracized from community, that would almost... I mean that that will that will put you in a very precarious position, wouldn't it? Because for you to be, you know, to to celebrate, you know, your major Jewish holidays, usually that's quite a obviously quite community focused, as you said. A lot of the practices involve community. Um, what are the ways in which I guess queer Jewish people, for the sake of simplicity, in Melbourne, um, have created to um, I guess to protect their Jewish and queer identities? I suppose. Hmm. I think that's interesting for me specifically because I think that my path to Jewish community has been odd <laughs> and um, atypical because I think that when I grew up, I didn't go to a Jewish school. I didn't go to a Jewish youth group. Um, my family being very, very left-wing were just generally not super enmeshed and connected into the Jewish community. Um, that's not to say that none of the Jewish community is left-wing, but I think that there can be a bit of a divide um, sometimes and at least tensions for people. Um, I think also because... I think actually I'm just realising now, I think also because Jewish culture is so much arguing and critiquing and talking. I feel like differences in politics between Christian people is maybe a little more polite. Like it's maybe not as spoken about. Like maybe you don't actually bring up your politics so much because that's like that's not a thing that you, that you know, the the white Christian like dinner, dinner talk. It's not appropriate kind of thing. Whereas I, I feel like potentially in um, Jewish cultures, you're more likely to actually know somebody's politics because you're more likely to be talking about it over the top of each other and arguing about it. Um, but yeah, so I wasn't necessarily enmeshed in, in the Jewish community. And then being a person of colour was an additional barrier to that for me. Um, but actually I've started to find more Jewish community actually out of the queer community. Um, the 
I think nearly all the Jewish people that I'm like friends with or close with or connected to now, I actually met through a sub -Jew tiny Jewish subset of the queer community, um, which is kind of a funny way to be re-entering the Jewish community, but also a, a pretty rewarding one too because it means that I am um, entering the Jewish community with a, a really queer and progressive, radical, intersectional lens, which um, I otherwise, otherwise might not have been my entrance point to the Jewish community for me. Yeah, I, for some queer Jews, the threat or fear of being ostracized from some part of the community can be really damaging and really harmful. And you know, particularly for queer Jews growing up in the Orthodox community, so kind of tends to be more insular, more conservative parts of the Jewish community. They often don't have a lot of those other connections, so that can be quite difficult. Um, but for a lot of us, there isn't one single Jewish community, even only in Melbourne, to be ostracized from. And you know, the, the fear of being ostracized from your part of the Jewish community is definitely a very serious and dangerous and damaging aspect but in terms of queer Jews and protecting ourselves from that ostracization there's always other parts of Jewish communities that we can be part of and Jews don't really go in for centralized authority you might notice that both the shuls Kalenu and Kedem are both lay led so that means there isn't a rabbi, there isn't one single person kind of running even that very small part of the community. It's a group of people just kind of coming together and saying, we want to do these Jewish things in these ways. I think this is another way that Judaism is quite queer, that I guess you call it grassroots Judaism. I love of, that. That's so good. It feels so similar to the kind of grassroots activism that we do in queer communities. So uh, personally, I've never worried about losing connection to a Jewish community. Firstly, because there's always space to bring up what the problems are. And secondly, because if some part of the Jewish community has a lot of bigots, has a lot of queerphobia and transphobia, well, I don't have to be there, but there's, there's somewhere else you can go and it's not reliant on kind of the handful of larger institutions that we have. Hi, this is JD Sampson, and you're listening to Queering the Air on 3CR. Yes. Awesome. Tune in to Power from the Margins, 3CR's broadcast for International Day of People with Disability on 3rd of December. From 7am to 7pm, we'll feature BIPOC perspectives, live music, artists and discussions. For details, visit 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2019. 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.